Hello, my name is Nicholas Corey, and you are listening to Enter the Novelcast. The Visitors Quarantine Chapter 1 Gordon's dark eyes fluttered open, and he realized he was lying on the floor, staring at a sterile, tiled ceiling not far above him. His head ached, a powerful throbbing pain inside his temples. He sat up, pressing his hands to his cranium in an effort to silence the pain. It only helped a little. He blinked a few times and took in his surroundings, and he saw he was seated in a short hallway close to one end. The door at the far end of the hall was closed, and even though it was metal and without blemish or detail, it held some strange familiarity with him. He considered it, narrowing his eyes, ignoring the throbbing pain, but couldn't place where he knew it from. He just knew it. He turned and looked over his shoulder, at the only other door in the entire hallway. It was much closer than the metal one, and it was similar in size and make, but there was something about this door that set Gordon Lucas on edge. His eyes scanned its impossibly clean surface, its windowless composition. He saw how the fluorescent lights of the ceiling reflected off of the round brass knob, its sheen causing Gordon's heart to race inexplicably. And then he noticed that this door was cracked open, though through it he couldn't see anything, as the room beyond was shrouded in a darkness so complete that it set Gordon's hairs on the back of his neck on end. Or was it the unshakable nagging feeling he had that there was another set of eyes staring back at him from that unrelenting darkness. He quickly turned and looked ahead again and saw the familiar door. He stood slowly, his, a- his legs aching, his knees popping. He was in his mid-forties and he seemed to feel that age now more than ever. He looked ahead, straightening his back and looking at the closed door once again, some twenty yards ahead of him. He didn't want to turn and look at the other door. He knew it was wrong, somehow. Its sinister existence couldn't be defined, not now. Maybe when he had more time to sit and consider it, he could make more sense of the strange feeling of dread it gave him, but now he was filled with an urgency to get away from it. He clenched his fists, ignored the dull pain in his knuckles and the feeling of swelling in his fingers. He focused on the good door ahead, and he strode forward. Gordon, are you even listening to me? Gordon Lucas's attention was brought back to the present when the broker seated opposite him called him by name. He rubbed his black and gray stubble, unkempt facial hair that was swiftly turning into a full beard. Sorry, Peter, he said absently. Peter West, his acquaintance and job broker, was younger than Gordon, looking to be around 30 or 35 years old. He sat forward in the chair leaning forward on the table and looking at Gordon with an intensity that told the older man he had missed something important. "'Could you run that by me again?' Gordon asked, his dark, baggy eyes only connecting with Peter for a brief moment before resting their gaze on the table once more. Peter sighed. "'I said that you need to step up your game. There are other runners out there now, more than before. There's more competition. If you keep coming back with only half of the recovery... Then you're going to make it hard for me. That wasn't my fault, Gordon said, looking down. He reached for the half-filled glass of brandy in front of him and took a sip, savoring the taste. It doesn't matter, Peter said. 
All the client sees is a job half done. I'm going to be honest, Gordon. I may have to stop bringing you jobs altogether. Gordon's eyes shot up, focusing on Peter with a look of desperation, lined with the very slightest hints of rage. You can't do that to me, he said. Peter frowned, and then reached beneath the bar's table and pulled up his gray briefcase. Then do this one right, he said. Gordon's eyes looked off again as Peter set the briefcase on the table. The clicking of the locks being released, normally a shockingly loud sound, was lost in the general din of the bar. It was the morning still, but the bar was filled with about half the patrons as it would see that evening. Most of them were waiting to start work, just like Gordon, and so they congregated at Haven's only bar, Duke's. Peter looked through some of the briefcase's contents, his actions hidden from Gordon behind the open lid. Okay, he said, still looking down. The address is 372 Forest View Drive South, in Kendall. You know where that is? Gordon nodded. Kendall was a small town, probably only about six miles inside the perimeter. It would be a short trip, one he could finish and get back to Haven with the time to spare. As long as there weren't any more complications. The client is asking for only a few items, very run-of-the-mill. Toshiba notebook and a red photo album. Gordon nodded again. Most of the things he was sent in to retrieve were similar objects. Items of some level of practical or often sentimental importance. The vast majority of the refugees were displaced so suddenly that they were forced to leave all their belongings behind. Many of the homes that were abandoned inside of the perimeter sat, unvisited and undisturbed for weeks, still looking as if their residents were simply in another room. And then the bandits moved in. And much of the homes and businesses just inside of the perimeter were looted and ransacked, left empty and broken in their, in their deserted towns. When word of the bandits had traveled to the displaced refugees, they began finding others, people brave enough, crafty enough, or foolish enough, to sneak into the perimeter for them and return with their precious belongings. They were called runners, and they were sent inside the quarantine region with an address and a short list. If they returned with the items and didn't get stopped by bandits, runners, or the effects of the visitors, they would be paid and they could live well for another week. There's also an envelope, Peter said, in the basement bedroom hidden underneath the mattress. Client said that if you can only find that, then he'll pay you in full. What's in the envelope? Gordon asked. Nothing of use, Peter responded. Some cash, it sounded like. So the client is from out of town, Gordon thought. The few towns around the quarantined area were so densely populated with refugees that the United States government had placed the military in charge of the entire region. Money had no use to anybody so close to the zone, as everything was distributed by the National Guard amongst the families that lived there. Even the mountains of donations that were brought in from all over the country went to the military first, where they were then divided and delivered to those who needed them most. How much are they offering? Gordon asked. Eight, Peter said. It's not much, but that will last you a while. Gordon looked up at Peter again, his brow furrowed with confusion. Eight vouchers, he said. It sounds like too much. Peter shrugged. It's what they offered. Gordon narrowed his eyes at the younger man, considering his mannerisms. Peter continued to look into his briefcase, not making eye contact with Gordon. He could hear papers shuffling inside the case, and watched as Peter cleared his throat nervously. He seemed anxious about something, as if he were lying. Peter, Gordon said, are you kicking in extra? Peter's blue eyes looked up and connected with Gordon over the open lid of the case. You are. Look, 
Peter said. It's only to keep you set for a while. I get it. If you finish this one, things may turn around, but I have to protect my business. I said I get it. That's two months worth of food. More than enough to take. Gordon pounded his fist on the table and Peter stopped talking. Just stared wide-eyed at the older man. Gordon inhaled deeply, his jaw clenching as he locked stairs with the broker. He sighed heavily and turned his eyes away. I get it, he repeated. But if you're doing that, well then I'd like an advance. Peter frowned again. Gordon, why do you need an advance? I just could use it. Doesn't have to be a lot, maybe just three. Peter hesitated for a brief moment, and then reached up and closed his briefcase with one hand, the other hand holding three small slips of thick paper stamped with a seal from the National Guard and the United States government. He reached across the table, handing them to Gordon, who took them and stuck them into a pocket inside his left jacket. Thanks, he said. That's three weeks of food, Peter reminded. Don't be careless with it. Don't patronize me, Gordon responded, his tone lined with a cold bite. Peter stared at Gordon for a moment, and then locked his briefcase, letting it fall to his side as he stood from his chair. "'You'll be heading out tonight?' he asked. "'Yeah,' Gordon responded. "'You've got work today?' Gordon nodded. "'Yep. Thursdays are usually that, though. I should be out early.' "'Okay,' Peter said. "'I'll see you tomorrow morning.' Gordon gave a half-hearted wave as Peter exited the small bar, remaining seated until the younger man was out of sight. He then finished his drink and carried the empty glass towards the bar, passing a few other patrons on his way. The bar itself was old-fashioned, crafted from beautiful mahogany with a long brass foot rest along its, along its base. It was smooth to the touch and only had a few scratches or marks in it, and they were easy to miss. The owner and bartender of Dukes, a man named Frank Southers, took great care to keep his establishment as pristine as the day his grandfather had built it. There was a lot of history to this bar. And there was a lot of history in all of Haven. When the visitors arrived in the city a few years back and the evacuation was called, very few people from Haven left, despite their close proximity to the edges of the quarantined region. The people of Haven weren't ready to give up on their past like the people from the city, or even from Wellington. Even when refugees came from the city by the busload and the National Guard began taking over schools, the Civic Center, and the parks to establish shelter for the displaced, the people of Haven either dug in their heels and refused to move, or did what they could to help the refugees. Frank Struthers was a helper. He was told to close down his bar to allow for the building to be used for food distribution. It was close to the center of town and the few military personnel that were to be stationed in Haven saw it as having great potential. Frank struck up a deal, offering to store and distribute the food stores himself, as long as he could continue to run Dukes. He even began accepting food vouchers as payment instead of cash, since money had little value to the displaced. Or to the displaced who chose to stay in Haven rather than heading to other parts of the country, which was a larger number than anybody expected. People weren't ready to give up their old lives and continue to live with the hope that tomorrow, next week, next month, the quarantine region will be habitable once again, that the visitors would leave and the city would be cleaned and all would be right with the world once more. Gordon wasn't as hopeful. He had lived in Haven for most of his adult life, and when the authorities offered voucher payment to those willing to take on jobs and tasks, Gordon saw his place in the town's new dynamic. In truth, he didn't need the advance from Peter. 
as he had quite the store of extra vouchers. He just didn't want to spend his own on another bottle of whiskey. Hey, Gordy, Frank said. What are you looking for today? Gordon stood between two empty stools, and instead of finding his seat, he set the three vouchers on the table. Well, I'll take one of those bottles of Jack and, uh, two weeks. Frank smirked as he collected the vouchers from Gordon. You're an easy man to please. Gordon drove the white, windowless van up to the military checkpoint in the mid-morning sun. The silver lettering stenciled on the side, Wellington Research Facility, reflected the sunlight with a sharp shimmer. He pulled into the checkpoint, stopping before the yellow and black gate that blocked the road ahead, into the city of Wellington. Hey, Gordon, the familiar voice of Private Devin Ragsdale said through the pane of protective glass. The young private suffered a leg injury in the first in the first days of the visitor's arrival those years ago, and now he was confined to jobs that didn't require much running or standing. So, being the long-shift watchman suited him just fine. You're early. Gordon leaned out the open window of his van, keeping one hand resting casually across the steering wheel. Every day. They ready for me yet? Almost, I think. I'll let you in. Just sit tight at the loading dock. Aye, aye. Private Ragsdale Preston held a button down on his console inside the booth, and the gate ahead rolled slowly open. Gordon drove through with a nod to Devon. He drifted slowly down the streets of Wellington, making his way towards what used to be the Wellington University campus, but what was now the Wellington Quarantined Research Facility. After the perimeter was established, the cities of Wellington, Ty, and Cedar Grove, all of which were located within five miles of the perimeter, were repurposed to be the hubs of military activity and research of the quarantine region. Of the three cities, Wellington was the largest, and also the most centrally located, and so it became the headquarters for the entire area, into which the information, observation reports, and scientific data of the other two cities convened before being shipped off to Melbourne, the closest city with a full airport and military base. And Gordon was one of the delivery drivers. It was his responsibility to, at least twice each day, report to the Wellington facility, load up their outgoing files and equipment, drive them to Melbourne, unload, load up any new equipment, and return to Wellington. The entire trip took about three hours, meaning Gordon was on the road for a minimum of six hours every day. He pulled up to the Wellington Research Facility, passing through the second checkpoint and nodding at the guard posted there. He circled the large campus, driving around to the back, which, he, which had been retrofitted to allow for a small loading dock. He followed his routine of backing the van up to the empty dock, and then leaned against the frame of the dock door, lighting a cigarette and looking out to the rear of the facility, where three dumpsters were gathered, along with two large propane tanks and a fenced-off area for exterior maintenance equipment. As he stood there, reminding himself of the location for the job he had picked up from Peter, 372 Forest View Drive South, Kendall, he heard the rumble of another engine, and watched as a second van, similar to his, drove out from a nearby parking lot heading towards the north gate of Wellington. He knew that van was headed to Cedar Grove, the facility on the northern perimeter. He knew he had to be early this morning, as normally the Cedar Grove van was long gone by the time he arrived for his shipment. His knees ached, his back ached, and he was eager for nightfall to come. He never felt like more of a fake than when dealing with the researchers in the military, and he never felt more at home than when he was sneaking through the forests and fields of the quarantine region, with nothing but his familiarity with the area and the light of the moon to guide him. Gordon sighed. It was going to be a long day.
Thank you for listening. You can catch new episodes of The Visitors and Enter the Novelcast every Monday morning at 7 a.m. Central Standard Time. To find more information on Enter the Novelcast, visit nicholascorey.com. To learn more about other creative projects from myself, please visit nicholascorey.com. And to reach out to me directly, feel free to send an email with your feedback to nicholascorey at gmail.com.